0: You're listening to The Corbett Report.
1: CorbettReport.com
0: Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, here in March of 2023, with another edition of The Corbett Report podcast. And in the grand tradition of... Of episode 188 of this podcast, Listening to the Enemy, and episode 225 of this podcast, Still Listening to the Enemy, and episode 412 of this podcast, I read The Great Narrative, so you don't have to, and episode 418 of this podcast, I read Bill Gates' new book, so you don't have to. I present to you episode 439 of the Corporate Report podcast, I read Richard Haas's new book so you don't have to. And yes, as you can guess from that title, in today's episode, I am going to dissect The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens, the new book by the esteemed, outgoing president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas. Some would say the Council on Foreign Relations has been made up of architects of the New World Order, especially since the founder of the council was Edward Mandel House. I mean, that was very proud of his plan to convert America into a, a one world socialist state or a social state under the one world order. Uh, this is very well understood if you read the book, Shadows of Power by James Perloff. Uh, Richard Haas, what is your thoughts on that? Do you think that the Council on Foreign Relations has been an organization made up of architects to form a new world order and to get rid of the sovereignty of the United States of America? Uh,
1: short answer is uh, no. A slightly longer answer is the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh... When you people raise questions of new world order, I would simply say, and it gets at what I was talking about before. I think there's an interesting question out there at this moment in history. We have things like. Infectious disease that's now created conditions where nearly two million people around the world have died, nearly one fourth of them in our own country. Climate change. We've had the hacking uh, that the Russians have just carried out. We have global uh, terrorism. We have a North Korea with a growing number of uh, nuclear weapons and missiles that can bring those nuclear weapons here. So the question I have is how do we manage these threats in the world? And we can't manage them by ourselves. So to me, one of the challenges to the United States is how do we collaborate, coordinate with others, principally our partners and allies in Europe and Asia, but potentially elsewhere, to deal with these global challenges that don't respect borders? That's a fact of life. And the question is, can we develop new arrangements that are better able to contend with these challenges that don't respect borders, including things like viruses? be they computer viruses or physical viruses. So I would think that's very much in our interest. Now we have the sovereign right to participate in those efforts or to reject those efforts. That's totally up to us. But I think on balance, we would be better served depending on the details of the efforts to to participate them. And, but that is what foreign policy is all about. It's to make those, it's to make those choices.
0: Yeah, that Richard Haass. And as you might be able to guess from the title of his new book, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens, his new book is all about Richard Haass, esteemed outgoing president of the CFR, here to tell you that those founding father guys and the whole Bill of Rights and all that dusty, musty old document parchment stuff, yeah, that's that's all right. But what we really need is Richard Haass to come along and tell us what you fellow Americans need to do for your country. So the Bill of Obligations obviously plays off the Bill of Rights. And you have strong things to say about why a
2: rights-based system is not sufficient. Tell us about that.
1: Look, rights are obviously fundamental to the American experiment. The Bill of Rights, Francis, which you just mentioned, was pivotal to getting the Constitution accepted. Several states conditioned their willingness to ratify the proposed constitution on the acceptance of a bill of rights that limited the power of the the federal government. My view is that as important as rights are, they're not enough, and don't get me wrong. uh, I still believe that rights remain, to borrow from Abraham Lincoln, our unfinished work. But even if somehow we were able to finish that work and put uh, the realities in line with the principles of the Declaration of Independence say, it still wouldn't be enough. Rights inevitably come into conflict. Think about it a woman's right to choose and the rights of the unborn, someone's right to bear arms under the Second Amendment versus public safety, someone's right not to get immunized or wear a mask versus someone's right to, to, to health. So, what do we do? Do we have gridlock? Worse yet, do we descend into to violence? So, my view again is that while rights are essential, they're only one side of the democracy coin. The other side of the democracy coin is obligations, what you and I owe to one another and what both of us owe to this country of ours.
0: Well, I think you see where this is going, and it's one of those things that may sound reasonable enough if... Boy, you stripped of all the context and the fact that this is the president of the CFR speaking on behalf of the globalist class. Maybe, well, okay, yeah, maybe in order to lead happy and productive lives and to flourish in community together, we need something more than just the list of rights. Maybe we need things that, well, this is what we should be doing with our lives. Okay, all right, now let's listen to Richard Haass tell us about this, right? Anyway, again, stripped of all the connotation and baggage and everything on top of it, eh, you know, okay, maybe sounds reasonable, but I just wonder if there may be some devil hiding in these details. Well, (laughs) let's find out, shall we? And if all of this puts you in mind of, oh, I don't know, JFK, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Well, actually, the specific reference here is not JFK, but FDR. That's right, in the conclusion to this book, Richard Haas cites Franklin Delano Roosevelt, then presidential nominee, in his 1932 speech at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, where he said that government is a relation of give and take, a contract. Rulers were accorded power, and the people consented to that power on consideration that they be accorded certain rights. Well, of course, I would interject, I I don't remember uh, consenting to that power relationship. I... I, I'm sure tr- I'm th- racking my memory when I was born was was I handed some contract to sign? Oh wait. But beyond that, uh, well, okay, so what is the implication here? Well, actually, it it's it's even worse because uh, Haas is not citing FDR approvingly here, he is saying, Actually, this FDR, the same Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, as Antony Sutton documents in exhaustive detail, was funded by the very same Wall Street interests that funded the Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of Hitler in order to create an oligarchical system, one-world system of oligarchical control, uh, starting with the bur- uh, cradle-to-grave nanny state in the U.S. and the, uh, the accompanying infantilization of of the American citizenry, the the confiscation of gold, the institution of the Social Security ID control grid, the engineered entry of the U.S. into World War II via the known in advance Pearl Harbor attack, and the greatest expansion of the federal government in U.S. history to that point, didn't go far enough. (laughs) That's right. Don't worry, Richard Haas is here to tell you that actually, he should have gone further with that. So... Anyway, I, I imagine you can figure out where this is going. And if you can figure out where this is going, then you are free to move on with your day. I give you leave. Goodbye. <laughs> you've, gotten, you've gotten the gist of it. But if you are here for some of the details, well, as I say, I read the book so you don't have to. And as always, I am saying I am not dissuading anyone from reading anything for themselves. In fact, I always tell you to go and read the source material if you are interested in it. Do not take my interpretation or anyone's interpretation for at face value. I'm just going to summarize the book and you can decide for yourself whether this is something you want to invest your time in. I would, I would advise not to invest your money in it. I don't think Richard Haass and his CFR handlers really need any more of your money. So if you can find a, uh, a library or some other way of acquiring this book without paying for it, I, I would suggest that. But anyway, if you are along for the ride, then uh, plug your nose because we're diving right in. <laughs> so let's start by delving into the introduction where... He opens the book talking about the surprising way that he has found himself answering the questions that he always is getting from the throngs of people who are just sitting at his lap asking, oh, great and wise one, uh, what should we do about the, what is the greatest threat to American democracy? Is it is it China? Is it Russia? Is it foreign election? What is, what is the real threat here? And he says, uh, the most urgent and significant threat to American security and stability stems not from abroad, but from within. From political divisions that for only the second time in U.S. history have raised questions about the future of American democracy and even the United States itself. Okay, so don't leave us hanging there, Dick. I can call you Dick, right? What What is that threat? Well, of course, the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, along with other attempts to overturn a free and fair election, made clear America's internal divisions had reached a qualitatively different and dangerous level, blah, 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 blah. Yes, of course, the the ever-looming threat of the danger to democracy posed by January 6, 2021, worse than 9-11, I tell ya. Haas <laughs> doesn't say that specifically, but uh, I'm sure we've all seen that framing in the media over the past couple of years on what was obviously a staged event that was meant to be a big catalyzing false flag event, but actually turned out into a a firecracker of nothingness that they've been building up for the past few years as this incredible turning point in American democracy. Well, this is really, I think, the emphasis and the impetus for Haas's book. And he is at pains in this introduction to state that this isn't a partisan thing. It's not about the phony left-right divide, guys. For most of my adult life, I was a registered Republican, Although in the summer of 2020, I reluctantly concluded I was no longer comfortable in that party and changed to no party affiliation. But even when I was a Republican, I would at times vote for Democrats. Party was never as important to me as individual candidates and issues because I float on a cloud, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. But that is the point. He is telling you the real point here uh, is not, this isn't about Democrats or Republicans. It isn't about that. No, the fundamental threat, the thing that really keeps the president of the CFR and his ilk up at night is the threat to the system itself. You can choose Coke or you can choose Pepsi. Go bananas go all out. Yeah, Coke, 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 Pepsi, 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 whatever. Have your wars, your Coke, Pepsi wars. Make your life around Coke or Pepsi. Wear the Coke and Pepsi paraphernalia and march around with Coke and Pepsi placards. Do whatever you want in that Coke and Pepsi game, but just don't ever question the game itself. That is the real threat to the cfr of the world. So, um, so, I, I, it brings to mind for me the, uh, the Principal Skinner meme. <laughs> maybe maybe I'm to blame for the state that we find ourselves in. Maybe it's, maybe it's the super class in the CFR and people that I associate with that have brought us to this point of such partisan rancor and, and division in the country. No, it's the concept of citizenship itself that's wrong. <laughs> it's not me. So he goes on to say, in short, what led to this book is not my political preferences. I'm motivated by what keeps me up at night. Our democracy is imperiled and its demise would be an incalculable loss to this country's citizens and to the world. My belief is that it can be saved only if Americans across the political spectrum come to accept that citizenship itself involves more than asserting or the governments protecting what they understand to be their rights. I've come around to the view that our very concept of citizenship needs to be revised, or better yet, expanded, if American democracy is to survive. So don't leave us hanging, Dick. What's the answer? Beyond rights, Obligations are the other cornerstone of a successful democracy. Obligations between individual citizens, as well as between citizens and their own government. Without a culture of obligation coexisting alongside a commitment to rights, American democracy could well come undone. We need nothing less than a bill of obligations to guide how we teach, understand, and conduct our politics. Well... The first thing I would notice, <laughs> the Bill of Obligations, is <laughs> that, that, isn't, uh, that isn't a good way to sell this idea, right? <laughs> the Bill of Rights, you know, it sounds like something you can get behind on some theoretical level, but the, the Bill of Obligations, yes, obligate us government. <laughs> it's just, as a marketing tool, it just seems like a it's already a, a false start. But anyway, who am I to give him ideas, right? So anyway, you get the idea. That's the frame for the book, and that's the introduction. And... As I say, I think you know where this is going, but let's get into it. So obligation one, he's got this list of 10 obligations that new American reformed American citizens will have to pledge themselves to, right? Well, obligation one, be informed, which means uh, the belief that an informed citizenry is essential to the the survival of American democracy is as old as the republic itself, but... How can people get informed about democracy, Dick? Well, of course, he goes on to say, All sources are not equal and any citizen would do well to read a major newspaper such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and others that have bureaus around the world and cover global developments. What traditional newspapers have in common is that they have fact checkers and editors and they make an effort admittedly not always successful, to separate the political biases of the paper from the news coverage. Actually, quite explicitly, not in recent times. Um, But if you need more on that, you can see my recent editorial on journalistic objectivity or the lack thereof. Um, But anyway, I digress. Um, Of course. and, And of course, so what he's saying is trust the establishment dinosaur media, because they've never, well, they've guided you wrong once or twice, but generally speaking, they've got fact-checkers and editors, and they, they separate their political biases from the news, don't you know? So what is the real threat to democracy? The threat of rule by the people, right? It's people coming together to talk to each other. That's the real threat here. <laughs> communication. Free and open communication among the hoi, hoi polloi. No, this is what keeps Richard Hoss up at night. So that's the real danger, as he goes on to articulate. Social media can be especially problematic as people choose communities or follow only those who are like-minded. <gasps> Misstatements and opinions are often presented as facts when they are anything but. It is not research to visit such sites and accept what they say as gospel. (sighs) Given all of this, how do we know when a fact is a fact? It is essential to differentiate among facts, misstatements, opinions, predictions, and recommendations. And so he goes on to detail and define all of those, starting with facts. Facts are assertions that can be demonstrated to be so, measured, and proven, and proved. Really? Okay, so tell us, Dick, what are these facts that can be uh, uh, measured, and demonstrated, and proved? Well, for example, take climate change, that the temperature of the atmosphere has increased 1.1 degrees centigrade, approximately 2 degrees Fahrenheit, since the onset of the industrial age is a fact. Really? Is it? Uh, It looks like someone hasn't watched what is the average global temperature yet. (laughs) And then, of course, you know it's coming. The COVID-19 pandemic likewise provides multiple il- illustrations of what's being discussed here. It is a fact that as of summer 2022, at least 1 million Americans and 15 to 20 million people worldwide have died of complications stemming from COVID-19. Died, died with, died of, whatever. To deny this is to deny this is to misstate what has occurred. To say that the virus emerged accidentally from a laboratory in Wuhan, China is an assessment. To say it emerged from so-called wet markets in China is a competing assessment. To project that millions more will die from the virus or one of its variants is a prediction. It is a fact that vaccination and the wearing of masks can protect people from infection and save lives. To argue that the federal, state, or city governments ought to mandate either of these actions is a policy recommendation. Exactly. And then, of course, comes the obligatory citing of the quotation from Daniel Moynihan. Everyone is entitled to his own opinions, but not his own facts. Quotes Richard Haass, as if that quote doesn't apply to himself first and foremost anyway. And yes, of course, experts like those esteemed members of the Council on Foreign Relations do sometimes get the facts wrong, but no biggie. They didn't mean to get it wrong. Quote, experts can be wrong at times, as most were in stating that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction in the run-up to the 2003 war. This proved to be a misstatement. There is a distinction, though, between misstatements based on a faulty assessment of available evidence, which this proved to be, and those made with intent, i.e. lies, in which known facts are ignored or material or material is presented as fact when it is not. What experts owe the public in such cases is not just their rigorous analysis, but also statements of how confident they are in their assessments and how they came to them. Oops! Did our lies about Iraqi WMDs lead to the destabilization of the most volatile region in the world in an ongoing, never-ending military invasion and occupation that cost Americans trillions of dollars and, oh, by the way, millions of Iraqi lives, not that anyone's counting them. But relax, it was just a misstatement based on a faulty assessment. Oh, well, you know, better luck next time, right? Which leads us to obligation two, get involved. A democracy depends on the participation of its citizens. And blah blah blah. This all requires, though, that citizens take an active part in their democracy. Meaning? The most basic measure of democratic involvement is voting. Of course. Blah blah blah. Make sure to fill out the slave suggestion form, guys. We'll take it super serial next time. Hmm. Maybe we should make it mandatory, like they do in that beacon of democracy, Australia. Yes, he does float that. Anyway, next! Uh, obligation three. Compromise. I am not sure when compromise became a four-letter word. For the record, it's ten. <laughs> uh, uh, John F. Kennedy made the case for compromise. Compromise needs, need not mean cowardice. Indeed, it is frequently the compromisers and conciliators who are faced with the severest tests of political courage as they oppose the extremist views of their constituents. Compromise was at the heart of the process that led to the Constitution. End quotes. Actually, treachery was at the heart of the process that led from the "Let's amend the Articles of Confederation" guys to "Oh, surprise! It's a it's a whole new Constitution with a whole new government we're creating." Oh, <laughs> here you go, guys. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Now you guys get to vote, and uh, it doesn't really matter how you vote. We're gonna ratify it anyway. Hey, here's the new government, right? That that treachery. I uh, wasn't about compromise, but you know, whatevs. Next obligation: four, remain civil. Civility and being civil to others are essential to the workings of democracy. Civility is closely aligned with manners, with respect, with courtesy, with politeness. To learn how to disagree without being disagreeable, to paraphrase the golden rule, civility is about treating others as you would like others to treat you. Translation, please be kind to your esteemed CFR oligarch overlords as they're trying to herd you into the cattle pen in order to cull you out of the human population. It's all for your own good. They're there. Just be civil about it. Don't don't raise your voice. I am reminded in this particular passage from this book of a recent Twitter conversation that I saw that I won't be able to link up because I didn't bother to note it down or note the link. But there was a a back and forth that was going on between some globalist stooge and some critic. And uh, basically, the globalist stooge came back and said, well, if you're not going to be civil about this, then our conversation is is at an end. To which someone uh, replied, and this is the state of the world, 2023. I really, genuinely couldn't tell whether it was a troll or someone who was being completely sincere. But they replied to that statement by saying something um, like, "Oh well, civility is just a racist construct," and <laughs> provided a, a cover image of a book that is about how civil, civility, and p- manners and politeness is racist, uh, apparently. So, <laughs> so, uh, so the wind reap the whirlwind, right, Dick? Anyway, next. Obligation five, reject violence. One characteristic that makes a government sovereign is that it holds a monopoly on the legitimate use of force within its borders. Yes, this is what statists actually believe. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Keep it peaceful, guys. Again, kind of following on from the uh, keep it civil, keep it peaceful, no no violence. Of course, it is odd that in a book that is all about the founders of the, the country, the fathers of the constitution, and these people who literally fought a war, literally took up arms against the establishment of the, their day, against the government of their day, in order to effect a violent change in, in the entire status quo, which, by the way, was predicated on a document, the Declaration of Independence, with its long train of abuses that was n- nothing other than a conspiracy realist document of the late 18th century. This is what the king is doing. This is what he's doing. This is what he's doing. This, is a, this isn't just an isolated incident here or there. This is a plan to keep us subjected to the crown. We are fighting against that. We pledge our lives on this line by signing this document. We are going to fight to the death to uh, win our independence. But in a book that's ostensibly all about that, C.F.R. Dick is saying, come on, guys, keep it civil, keep it peaceful. No need for violence. Interesting. Anyway, next, obligation six, value norms. Norms are the unwritten traditions, rules, customs, conventions, codes of conduct, and practices that reduce friction and brittleness in a society. Words like Cushion and lubricant come to mind. (laughs) I bet they do, Dick. Uh, Laws provide the scaffolding of a society, but norms are what fill it in and make it livable. The furniture within the building, so to speak. The argument here is that the observance of the law, and to be more precise, the letter of the law, is necessary but insufficient for this or any democracy to endure, much less thrive. Observance of norms is required as well. All right. You know what? Kidding aside, sounds reasonable, right? Again, stripped of all the context, it does sound reasonable. Yes, of course, you can have any sort of rules and structure and system, but without the norms, the unwritten part of this code, without without people who are at least willing to try to work together and work through issues, etc., how can you have an actual flourishing society? Okay, you know, fair enough. I, I think, again, stripped of all the context, that's more or less correct. So how could how could he possibly screw this one up? Oh wait, (laughs) perhaps the most basic norm of American democracy is the tradition of accepting election results. Blah, 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 fraud, be it stuffing ballot boxes, not counting votes, or allowing ineligible voters to vote is extremely rare in the United States and does not exist on a scale that affects outcomes. Asterisks, citation needed. The result is that the tradition has grown up of accepting election results, except in the small percentage of instances in which the vote is so close that a recount is required by law or warranted. There is nothing in the Constitution about concession speeches or congratulatory phone calls from the defeated candidate to the victor. There's no requirement that an outgoing president ride up Pennsylvania Avenue with the successor and attend his or her swearing in. But with few exceptions, this is just what has taken place. This is the norm. No such thing as vote fraud can't affect anything, guys. D- th- th- these aren't the, the droids you're looking for. Don't look over here and don't ever even question the fundamentals of the the, uh, the voting machines and other things that have been proven in court of law to be rigged from the start. No. Come on, guys. Conspiracy. Who boy. And it gets even better because later on in this... Uh, tr- uh, uh, treatise about values and norms, Uh, he goes on to say, legitimate journalists, as opposed to political activists masquerading as journalists, ought to be treated with respect. To describe journalists as the enemy of the people, as President Trump did on multiple occasions, violates the norm that accepts a free press as essential in a democracy, even if at times what media outlets print is problematic politically or inaccurate. (laughs) Oh, well... When you put it that way, Dick, then I immediately retract episode 430 of this podcast, The Media Are the Terrorists, and Everything It States and or Implies. (sighs) Next, obligation seven, promote the common good, i.e. we all live in a context. In a society, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is like the classic horrible high school essay opening, right? <laughs> we all live in a society. <laughs> Webster's defined society as, We have a stake in the overall well-being of that society, which in turn translates into our having a stake in the well-being of our fellow citizens. As poet and priest John Dunn wrote, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Wow. I, I half expect Richard Haas to start breaking out in song here. Oh, boy. Anyway, you know where this is going, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, this is the whole the whole meat and potatoes of the book. This is what it is about. So you know exactly how he's going to structure this argument. First, it's about, oh, oh, take smoking. In principle, we should all have the right to smoke if we want to despite the overwhelming evidence that smoking can kill the smoker, but blah, 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 but yes, secondhand smoke, and smoking can affect other people, and and seatbelts. I mean, everyone should have the right to do what they want, but if you don't wear a seatbelt, and blah, 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 you can... And before you know it, bada-bing, bada-boom, we arrive right at the doorstep of...
1: These and related arguments have come to the fore recently with the COVID-19 pandemic and resulting mask and vaccine mandates. Many Americans reject these mandates as an unacceptable infringement on their freedom to choose, in some cases giving up their jobs or access to schools or sporting events as a consequence. This is not the first time government requirements for vaccination have been met with resistance. At the beginning of the previous century, The disease in question was smallpox. The Cambridge, Massachusetts Board of Health issued an ordinance requiring that everyone get vaccinated or face a fine. Henning Jacobson, a local minister, refused, saying he and his son had suffered bad reactions to previous vaccinations and wanted no part of this one. What is more, he refused to pay the $5 fine. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled that, the liberty secured by the Constitution of the United States does not import an absolute right in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint. Nor is it an element in such liberty that one person or a minority of persons residing in any community and enjoying the benefits of its local government should have power to dominate the majority when supported in their action by the authority of the state. It is within the police power of a state to enact a compulsory vaccination law, and it is for the legislature, and not for the courts, to determine in the first instance whether vaccination is or is not the best mode for the prevention of smallpox and the protection of the public health. Justice John Marshall Harlan's reasoning is worth presenting. There is, of course a sphere within which the individual may assert the supremacy of his own will and rightfully dispute the authority of any human government, especially of any free government existing under a written constitution. But it is equally true that in every well-ordered society charged with the duty of conserving the safety of its members, the rights of the individual in the respect of his liberty may at times, under the pressure of great dangers, be subjected to such restraint to be enforced by reasonable regulations as the safety of the general public may demand. Mill would both understand and agree.
0: Okay, I'm sorry for subjecting you to Richard Haas's boring, dry monotone there, but hey, at least he didn't get TV's Wesley Crusher to narrate his audiobook like Bill Gates did, huh? Shut up, Wesley. Anyway... The government can mandate what you do with your body for the good of society. Now, hmm. Where have I where have I heard this before? Oh, that's right. Episode four 382 of the Corporate Report Podcast, Your Body, their choice. Oh, and uh What other illustrious Supreme Court decision was handed down directly on the back of this Jacobson v. Massachusetts verdict? Uh, It's right on the tip of my tongue. Oh,
2: that's right. Buck v. Bell. But start back in the 1920s with Carrie Buck.: So she's a young woman who is uh, growing up in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, being raised by a single mother. Back then there was a belief that it was better often to take poor children away from their parents and put them in middle-class homes. So she was put in a foster family that treated her very badly. she wasn't allowed to call the parents mother and father. She did a lot of housekeeping for them and was rented out to the neighbors. and then one summer she was raped by the nephew of her foster mother. She becomes pregnant out of wedlock. And Rather than help her with this pregnancy, they decide to get her declared epileptic and feeble-minded, though she was neither, and she shipped off to the colony for epileptics and feeble-minded outside of Lynchburg, Virginia.
1: And what happened to her there?
2: So she gets there just the wrong time. Virginia has just passed uh, an eugenic sterilization law, and they want to test it in the courts. So they seize on Carrie Buck as the perfect plaintiff in this lawsuit. So they decide to make her the first person in Virginia who will be eugenically sterilized. And suddenly she's in the middle of a case that's headed to the US Supreme Court.
0: The case was a sham, concocted merely to get the Supreme Court stamp of approval on the issue of forced sterilization. Buck's independent counsel was in fact Irving Whitehead, one of the founding directors of the colony that was pushing to sterilize her, and the man who appointed the director that was pushing for her sterilization. Buck herself was not feeble-minded, nor was her mother, nor was her daughter, Vivian Buck, who Carrie bore as a result of being raped and who was declared feeble-minded as a baby because, as a social worker testified during the trial, there was a look about it that is not quite normal but just what it is, I can't tell. None of these facts mattered to the Supreme Court. Presided over by former President and Chief Justice William Howard Taft, the court voted 8-1 in favor of upholding Buck's forced sterilization and the constitutionality of the Virginia eugenic Sterilization Law itself. Writing the decision was one of the most famous and venerated justices in the history of the court, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., himself a eugenicist from the so-called Boston Brahmin sect of the hereditary East Coast establishment. In his decision, Holmes justified the forced sterilization of those like Buck by calling on the government's right to vaccinate the citizens against their will. It is better for all the world if, instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime, or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes, he declared, before infamously concluding, three generations of imbeciles are enough. That globalist oligarchs who deign to hand down a list of obligations that you need to follow in order to be deemed a good boy or good girl are only barely able to hide their allegiance to eugenics and their obsession with culling you from the gene pool is a fact. Right, Dick? Anyway, blah, 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 you know where this argument goes. It is baffling that opposition to the COVID-19 vaccine should be as strong as it is given the vaccine's demonstrated effectiveness, its pristine safety record, and the obvious risks associated with contracting (gasps) COVID-19. It is also curious in the sense that mandates for various vaccines, including smallpox, polio, measles, mumps, and chicken pox, were widely accepted for decades. Were being the key word there. So why now? In many ways, the answers can be found in other chapters of this book, in the spread of misinformation via social media and, at times, legacy media alike. (gasps) In the reality that more of us live and work and socialize only with like-minded persons, growing hostility toward and lack of familiarity with government, because if we just were familiar with government, we'd lay down and accept whatever they wanted to do to our bodies, right, Dick? An increasingly widespread rejection of facts and the experts presenting them, and a declining respect for norms that have long guided individual behavior, a reduced propensity to compromise, and a near-exclusive emphasis on rights, when people consider their relationship with society and country. And then, of course, he goes on to blame rugged individualism. Where is that toxic masculinity for the mess that we're in? And I guess we're left to assume that what we really need is wimpy collectivism. Yay. <laughs> Won't you save us, nanny state? Please. Next, obligation eight respect government service. <laughs> Next, obligation nine, support the teaching of civics. Wow, what a bold, brave new proposal. That'll set things straight, I am sure. Next, obligation 10, put country first. Which, interestingly, he explicitly intends as a a sort of analog to the 10th Amendment of the Bill of Rights. The Tenth Amendment of the Constitution, the final amendment of the Bill of Rights, is something of a catch-all. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. Yay, amen, right? So he's a supporter of Michael Bolden and the Tenth Amendment Center and the work they're doing? Oh, maybe not. It follows on the nine previous amendments, which are for the most part specific in the rights they're protecting. The Tenth implies that there are additional rights the federal government cannot take away from the states and the people, even though they may not be specified So, I say this because the nine previous obligations put forward in this book, be informed, get involved, stay open to compromise, remain civil, reject violence, value norms, promote um, the common good, respect government service, and support the teaching of civics, lead to a tenth that provides guidance for all other behaviors not already specified. I speak of the obligation to put the country and American democracy before party and person. Lay down and, and die, you vile scum. This is the statist creed right here. <sighs> Finally, the uh, conclusion of the book follows on where he asks the hard question that everyone's thinking, right? Before going on, I want to address a path that might appeal to some readers. Why not make the Bill of Obligations amendments to the Constitution as was done with the Bill of Rights? <laughs> right, that's what we're all waiting for. Why not put it in, in writing that this is these obligations are legally binding on us? And he's like, oh, well hang on, guys, these aren't legal requirements, you know, and it might be a a lengthy and difficult process to actually amend the Constitution. So don't get too far ahead of yourselves. I know you're all chomping at the bit to be put under literal force of law with these obligations, right? But hold on. And then, (laughs) and then remarkably enough, he cites the Spotify, Joe Rogan, Neil Young dust up last year as something that, makes his point for him somehow? What took place with Spotify in early 2022 is a textbook case of democratic obligations ignored by some and embraced by others. The former applies to the company, which would not set meaningful standards of accuracy for its popular and lucrative podcast hosted by Joe Rogan. The musician Neil Young then demanded that Spotify either take down the podcast or he would no longer allow Spotify to carry his music. The company refused and Young walked. Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Brene Brown, among others him out the door. Uh, the company, unlike these artists, would not put principle before profit. What will matter is how many more artists follow suit and how many listeners refuse to patronize Spotify or other social media and cable networks that refuse to take responsibility for what they broadcast, even when it weakens democracy. Weakens democracy? <laughs> how do people talking about, even if they're wrong about their opinions, how does that weaken democracy, dick? Um, those who have formal powers, such as those in law enforcement in the military, likewise have a special responsibility to exercise those powers within the law, and fairly. The population's willingness to live under and up to the rule of law depends on... The rule of law. Hmm, the law of rule? Depends on the maintenance of social order and the implementation of the law in a manner consistent with its letter and spirit, blah, blah, blah. Actually, though, this passage underlines, if, if you do if this has whetted your appetite and now you can't wait to dig into this book, and you actually do go and acquire a copy of this book somehow and actually read it, you will find that this passage kind of encapsulates the the mood of the whole book. This is clearly a disoriented, aging old man yelling at clouds who has no idea what the world looks like in 2023. He's so far into his little filter bubble of his little CFR superclass colleagues that he has no idea. He is so far out of touch reality, of reality that he thinks that this... I, I You can well imagine him learning about this Rogan Spotify thing at the exact same time as he's learning that podcasting exists and what it is. And he imagines that this is some new great civil rights movement 2.0 or something in that the people are finally, they're rallying and standing up against these misinformation spreaders. And, and they're gonna, they're gonna take down the system by taking their music off of Spotify as if that wasn't just some part of the music catalog shuffling that Young and others are doing right now as they sell off their, literally sell out their catalogs. And, and people are taking a, a, a bold stance against the the right to hear people speaking freely about matters of importance and towards the bold new Bill of Obligations that will only allow us to listen to p- approved propaganda from approved information sources how did that whole Spotify thing turn out anyway? Who even knows or cares anymore? That was a fart in the wind in the 24-7 news cycle of 2022. That might as well have been 50 years ago. No one even remembers it. It matters to nothing, but it shows just how far out of touch with reality Richard Haass and his colleagues presumably are. And in a way that is comforting because, again, It's not just this passage, although I think that is reflective of the book as a whole, but when you read the book as a whole, you will see that this is a man who is living in a different era, and just as it was a comforting thing back in the mid-2000s when I started the Corbett Report, it was comforting to hear the dinosaur media talking heads consistently poo-pooing that intranet thing. (laughs) Where do you hear that? On the internet? (laughs) Not realizing that the comet had struck and they were on their way towards extinction. It is comforting to see this would-be ruler of the world. Ah, we can manipulate the global geo chessboard and do anything we want. We're masters of the universe. And they don't even understand the world that they're living in. They're, in their heads, it's still the 1950s. And and teaching people c- about civics and getting them to read the New York Times every day will make everything 1950s again. <laughs> total out-to-lunch Fruit Loops. Uh, just total wingnut craziness. Just Absolutely out of touch. And again, as I say, that's in a way comforting because it shows that Richard Haas and his elk might like ilk and his elk maybe like, may like to think that they control the world. But uh, they're just a bunch of fuddy-duddies who truly do not understand what's happening. Um, unfortunately I don't think Richard Haas really runs anything I think the actual technocrats who really do micromanage the implementation of the new world order are unfortunately more in touch with reality than the Haases of the world who are convenient super gophers uh for at mouthpieces essentially for the the technocrats and their agenda and uh and probably, honestly, probably not part of that inner circle that forms the real heart of the Council on Foreign Relations and Associated Roundtable Institutions that I've talked about many times on this podcast, Rings Within Rings, of course, being the, uh, the, the, the primary citation for that, and I will direct you back to the, uh, well, G. Edward Griffin lecture on that, as well as some of the other work that I've done on that concept. I don't think Richard Haas is in the inner society of the elect or whatever they're calling themselves these days. I think he's just the convenient mouthpiece or has been. But as I say, he's the outgoing CFR president. I believe in June he's handing over the reins to the next, maybe the next generation of globalist leadership. Anyway, so in a way it's good that they're so out of touch and do not understand what's happening and think that writing a book called the Bill of Obligations, about things that you should be obligated to do. And you'll all, you'll all enjoy this. You'll demand it. You'll want it hardwired into the Constitution, right, guys? <laughs> it's As I say, it's kind of comforting to know that someone that out of touch is in charge of this. But in, of course, the dark shadow of that comfort is the fear that these crazies, these out-of-touch lunatics will destroy the world on their way out the door as they shuffle off this mortal coil. That's always the looming threat. Anyway, I guess to sum all of this up, uh, I'm gonna give this book zero out of ten. Let's go negative one out of ten. Would not recommend, even to my worst enemy. Hey, as I say, I'm not dissuading anyone from reading anything. Read it for yourself. Maybe you'll get something of value out of it. If you have found anything of value in any of the uh, extensive um, bits that we've read here today, then go for it. Again don't pay him to read this, but anyway, sure, read it for yourself, but uh, I don't think you're going to get anything out of it, even even from the angle of listening to the enemy, finding out the propaganda. Again, I think Haas is so far out of touch that it shows that he is certainly not in the driver's seat of this global transformation agenda that is rolling out right now. Anyway, um, so take this for what it's worth. I think it's an interesting exploration, an interesting exercise to dissect this propaganda from time to time and that's what I'm here to do. So if you are along for the ride, thank you very much. As always, this media is brought to you by you. No sponsors, no ads, no sales pitch. All I've got is, if you like the work and you want to see more of it, please support it, corbettreportcom slash members. On that note, I am James Corbett of The Corbett Report. Looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.